Good morning. We are very glad that you are here. We'll be in Psalm 16 this morning. Um, as I was preparing the sermon last night, finishing some things, I made that mistake of jumping on social media to see what was going on in the world and learned that I, I believe maybe half of Crosspoint is on vacation. And so the other half is, is here, exhausted from VBS and maybe wishing they were on vacation. And so if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to trust the Lord to give you an attentiveness in the same way that I'm trusting the Lord to keep my, my words clear uh, this morning as we communicate. So as we dig in, before we do that, I actually, in light of what we are seeing in the text this morning, I'd like to start um, by doing the old-fashioned stand and greet the person next to you. We don't always do this, but it's fitting this morning. So lay your Bibles to the side. Everybody stand up. Greet the people around you as if it was 1984. Really take it in and shake hands. Introduce yourselves. That's enough. Let's not, not get too out of hand here. All right, everybody grab a seat. It is a very fitting morning to be aware of the people around you as we consider Psalm 16. If you're a visitor, we welcome you. We want to encourage you to go visit this uh, visitor kiosk after the service to get some information so you can know what's going on around here and how to get plugged in. I'm going to pray and we're going to dig in. Let's pray together. Lord, we humbly come before you this morning, and we are thankful for our time. We're thankful for the opportunity to get to sing about your goodness and know that you are a God who is with us, and that you inhabit the praises of your people, and that you are glorified when we do such a thing. Lord, we pray for another local church this morning. We pray for Cornerstone Fellowship. I pray for Trent Brown. Um, I'm thankful for his friendship through the years, and just pray that they are really enjoying you this morning as a church. I pray that you are blessing that congregation with growth, both, in, both in, growth inward and outward, that, um, that they are growing in their understanding and their knowledge of you and their love of you, but also growing in numbers as, as they push forward uh, for, the, for the forward movement of, the, of your kingdom. I pray for Trent and Natalie. Just pray that you continue to bless their marriage. Um, I'm thankful for the ways I've seen you do that through the years and just pray that they are genuinely enjoying you uh, together and that uh, in light of that, that Trent's able to stand and deliver having enjoyed um, his bride and enjoyed his God this week as he leads his people. Lord, you are um, very good to us this morning to bring us to Psalm 16. And so we humble ourselves before you and ask that you would speak to us this morning. We love you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we considered the first two verses of this psalm, and I would like to go ahead and read them. So Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2, says this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. What we found was a man in a, a very desperate situation crying out for help from God. We don't know in this psalm what the exact trial was, but we know it wasn't a light trial that he seemed to be facing because he's crying out for God to preserve him. 
It's a cry that says, if you don't preserve me, if God, if you don't step in and do something, this thing that I'm facing will overtake me and it will be the end of me. So this is not light. I mentioned last week that my my son asks me for help all the time, but not once have I ever heard my son cry out, Father, preserve me. It gives us a, a sense very quickly as we get into the psalm of the magnitude and the weight of the situation. Following the desperate plea for preservation, we find a really big statement from the worshiper. Two of them, in fact. The first one is, you are my Lord. And the second one is, I have no good apart from you. For the psalmist, his eyes are singularly focused on the Lord in the middle of his trial. He's not seeking preservation in many different ways, but in one way. And then he makes a remarkable statement in his plea for preservation. He says, I have no good apart from you. And this is where we're going to pick back up this week. I have no good apart from you. We spent time in the first half of that, and we're going to spend some time in the second half of that in the next verse this morning. I have no good apart from you. We considered the first reality of this verse last week, that there was no longer any room for presumption, as David had nothing good if that good had not come from God. David's not going to God and making a deal. There are no deals to be made. There are no exchanges. There's no room for David to say, okay, God, if you will preserve me, then I will do this for you, or I will be a better husband, I will be a better father, I will be a harder worker, I'll give more money, I'll, I'll focus more on you, I'll have more quiet times. There's no exchange to be made because there's no good to be had apart from God. He simply came to God as a beggar, with his hands open, needy, and as a wholehearted worshiper, desperately in need of that which only God could provide. This brings us to the second reality of this verse that we're going to consider this morning. So in your ESV, it reads, I have no good apart from you. But if anyone has a King James version or some other versions, they're actually a little closer to the original language. And that original language, there's a reality, I have no good apart from you. But the original language reads more like this, my well-being extendeth not unto thee. So there's these two realities in this verse. So that first one we picked up last week is, I don't have any good unless it comes from you. But this week, it's sort of that reversal where it's, all, any good I have doesn't make it to you. It doesn't get to you. My good doesn't extend to you. God, your good extends to me, but, but my good doesn't extend to you. And that's what we're going to be digging into this morning. As we unpack the rest of this verse and the following one, be reminded that this song isn't just informing us. These psalms are emotional. I explained last week that I'm an emotional guy, and my dad was an emotional guy. Criers at times, if you will. And it's emotional, like all of the psalms. And these these emotional psalms are inviting us in. So rather than just informing us, we're being invited in again this morning. And like last week, we need to see if we identify with the psalmist. Ask yourself, do you identify with what this guy is saying? He's writing a song. Can I sing along with him because I identify with what's going on there. Can we join in this song and sing along relating to his emotions as we consider our own? So from one perspective, we have no good apart from God. But the other important perspective is that our good can't ever make it to God. We're going to have to wrap our heads around this. Our good can't ever make it to God. It never extendeth unto him. So take this in for a moment. The psalmist is sitting in a very desperate moment, crying out to God for preservation, confessing that not only does he have no good apart from the Lord, but now nothing good that he has even can make it to God. None of his good is needed by 
God. Some of us forget that. You need to hear that this morning as we're digging into this. None of, none of our good is needed by God. As one scholar puts it, the psalmist can bring no advantage to God. We are empty and destitute of all things and have nothing with which to show ourselves liberal towards him. God is completely self-sufficient and in need of absolutely nothing from the psalmist. You might be thinking at this point, I'm so glad I'm here this morning. The, the psalmist is in a desperate situation. We're supposed to climb in with him. He's aware that he has no good unless that good comes from God and he won't be preserved unless God does it. And not only that, but if he were to muster all of the good that he has within himself, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't even make it out the door. God's self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything from him. And that, 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 might, that reality might have a tendency to kind of bring us down, to be like, man, well, that's not super encouraging, but I'm still listening, and I would encourage you to continue to listen and really think of this as a narrative. Think of this as a story that's being told, and, and in this moment where the psalmist is low, and he needs preservation, and he's aware that he has no good if it doesn't come from God, and the good he does have, God doesn't need anything from him, because God is completely self-sufficient. God is completely happy apart from the worshiper, although the worshiper is there for a reason. So there's kind of a tension that's being built, and if this were a story, and you were listening to someone tell it, you might be thinking, I wonder what happens next. I wonder what's going to happen next. I wonder what the next step is. I wonder what the psalmist is going to do. In, in his desperation and his lack of goodness, is it going to drive him into sadness and despair? Is that where the psalmist goes? Does, does he feel hopeless? Is the reality of God needing absolutely nothing from him going to shake his certainty of God's help? If he realizes I have nothing to offer, will that cause him to doubt? Is God going to actually help me? I don't know. What's happening next? What's the next line in the song? What's a fitting response in this moment? This moment where we have a desperate worshiper needing God's preservation, aware of his utter depravity and God's self-sufficiency. What makes sense? What's the next line? What's the next verse? What's coming? What is it? And then we go to verse 3 and we find it. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Makes perfect sense, right? No, it doesn't make perfect sense. That's a weird next line. That's a weird next line. We can say that. The Bible can handle that. God can handle that. We can say, okay, I don't get that. As for the saints in the land, in my desperate situation, I've got nothing good. My good can't get to God. He's utterly self-sufficient. I need him to get me through this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. Was that unexpected to anybody else? Would this have been anyone else's next line? I'm in a terrible trial. I'm destitute. I need God. God needs nothing from me. What's next? I love God's people. They're excellent. That's the song. That's, that's what we're being invited in to sing with them. I love God's people. They're excellent. Consider all of the other possible lines that could have gone here, right? The psalmist could have professed a desire to be alone because of his trial. I am destitute. God needs nothing from me. And then it goes to a minor chord. And there's tension. He says, and now I will sit alone in the dust. No, that, that would have made more sense to me. 
I kind of have a tendency to do that. He could have professed his desire to be alone. His next line could have been where he under, understandably professed that he just wanted some alone time because things are so hard, things are difficult, and I don't want to be around people. He could have mused on the futile nature of his best efforts. He could have said, I'm going to sit here in the, in the ashes and the dust, and I'm going to think about how my best efforts are nothing. That could have been the next line. His inability, he could have mourned his inability to bring anything good to God. He could have decided to insulate himself from others as he worked through this trying time. He could have, he could have gone down a line of thinking that says, in order to focus on God, I'm going to have to shut everyone else out. But no, we have to enjoy. This is this, it's kind of a one-point sermon this morning. We have to enjoy what's going on here. Rather than leaning away from others in his trial, he leans towards the church, the saints. These people are saints because, because God has called them his own. They are a nation set apart as a people for his own belonging. It would seem, in the psalmist's mind, that it is not possible to lean into God and away from his people at the same time. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down and think about it. Scripture says, think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding. This is, it seems that the psalmist is communicating that it is not possible to lean into God and away from his people at the same time. What we see shaping up in the psalm is a doctrine on what to do with all of the good that God gives us even when we are facing trials and hardships. One scholar expresses it like this, the wisest, the best, the most useful men in the world cannot be profitable to God. So we devote ourselves to God in the service of the saints. Have you, have you thought about your devotion toward God being directed toward his people? Is that a, a new thought to you, or is that a, something that you're actively trying to move in? Because the psalmist would say, this is what's normal. I will direct my service, my devotion to God toward the service of the saints. And the scholar goes on to say, it's not enough for us to delight only in the saints, but as there is occasion, our goodness must extend to them. We must be ready to show them the kindness that they need. We must be ready to distribute to their necessities and abound in the labor of love to them. Think for a moment if you've ever been on the receiving end of that. If, you, if you're sitting here this morning and you've ever been on the receiving end of the love of the saints, who, people who are leaning into God's people and providing, the reason they do that is because they have good from God and this is God's design. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. One thing we see here for the psalmist is that service toward the saints grows out of a delight in them. So I think that one fitting question to ask is, is this just a character trait of the psalmist? That he delights in God's people and directs his good towards them, even during his trials, or is this an expectation for all saints? Because I'll be honest, when I hear even fellow Christians talk about church people, it's not always bright and positive. If, if we're going to be honest this morning, um, Sometimes when, when we talk about church people, fellow brothers and sisters, even experiences that we've had at previous churches before we find ourselves in the current church, sometimes it's not always the best and we kind of guard and we put our, our, our walls up and it's a difficult circumstance. So my question is, this attitude that he has, I'm desperate, God, I have nothing good uh, unless it comes from you, none of my good can reach you, 
And then he says, I love God's people. I delight in them. They're excellent. Is that the normal response that each of us should have in our trials? I think it's a good question because it seems weird to me in the psalm a little bit. Can we all do this, even wired as differently as we are? Should we all be leaning in this direction? And what I would like to do is look at five pieces of Scripture, and then we'll look at a few application points right after that. And the first piece of Scripture is in Acts 2. The first two are in Acts, actually. So turn over to the book of Acts. We're trying to consider, is this normal, or is this psalmist a weirdo in his love for these people in the middle of his trial? In the middle of the craziness of life, is he crazy to not put his guard up? In Acts chapter 2, this is after Pentecost when the church is in its infant stages. And look at verses 44. Actually, we'll just start in 42 and we'll read through 47. This is, this is how this New Testament church, this thing that we're experiencing this morning, started. And we're trying to find out, is there a normalcy on what the psalmist is doing? And in that moment, leaning towards God's people, not just leaning towards them, delighting in them and giving the good that doesn't reach God, making sure they get that good. Is that a normal thing? And in Acts 2.42 it says, And they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. And they had everything, all things in common. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. Now this thing that's going on, this beautiful thing where the church is taking care of one another, now they're having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this early church experience is one where everyone comes together and says, man, we have everything in common. I'm lowering the guard. I'm lowering the walls. I'm inviting everybody in because everybody's inviting me in. And if there were any needs, we're going to provide them for each other. And it's interesting because what happens there is when, you, when a group does that, biblically, by nature of God's design, that group doesn't stay tiny for very long, does it? It's funny. My, my wife has friends that she meets with and goes... And hangs out with, and, and, and inevitably, there's, there's always people that are like, hey, uh, we'll join you, or yeah, y'all come join us. And there's this beautiful thing where those groups grow. When you start having people over for dinner in your home, you'll find that you'll, there's no lack of people that you can have for dinner in your home. When you, when you join as men to have some fellowship together, you'll find that each week there's new people you can invite, and it's, it's a thing that attracts people. It's an aroma of life when we are together in that manner. And when we are together in that manner, those groups don't stay stay tiny for very long. And if they do, they might be staying small for the wrong reasons. So we see this togetherness. We see this attention to each other's needs. And we might ask, well, this was like the the first moments of the church. Sure, it was awesome, right? Pentecost, people are seeing crazy awesome things from God. These are just these first infant moments. of, Of course it's awesome. It's kind of like when the baby's born. And everything's awesome. And it's so sweet. It's our little baby. And everybody loves a baby. And then like night eight of no sleep, you're like, what's happening? Life is crazy. Maybe this is just one of those sweet newborn stages, right? Well, turn over a couple chapters later. Look at Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 32. 
It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Still going on. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see God's goodness upon them all. That great grace can be equated to the psalmists, I have no good apart from you, but the good I have apart from you is great and gracious. And it was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is not just letting people in. This is giving people your money. This is not just giving people your money. This is selling your stuff so you can have something to give. That's what we're seeing here, this delight in the people that God has brought together. A delight that moves in the direction of goodness that often comes in the form of provision. Togetherness, shared goods, and no needy persons among them. In a healthy local church, there should be no needy persons among us. We should be moving with that goodness that we have from God in such a way that needs are met and there are no needy people among us. Does that sound nice to anybody? Does that sound like a, a sweet reality in the midst of a world that is utterly selfish? Let's continue reading. Look at 2 Corinthians. Keep turning to the right. Go to 2 Corinthians. So we have that example of the early church, and now let's look at an example from a church that actually wasn't all that healthy. There was a lot of crazy stuff going on in the Corinthian church. But let's see what God's design is and if it fits with the psalmist's delight in the holy people of God. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verses 3 through 4. We're building a catalog at this point. So in Acts, we see, we see togetherness, we see shared goods, we see no needy people among God's people. There's a delight in one another because of what God has done. And let's look at what happens in 2 Corinthians 1. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, a little, little Bible study tip. When you hear repeated words, you've got to pay attention. And we got a serious repeated word here, right? Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There's a theme. I'm going to let you all find it on your own. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So you see some things shared here, right? People are sharing in sufferings, so no one is suffering alone. And people are sharing in comfort because apparently comfort is important. Now, I've heard some, some pastors and some podcasts and some sort of shock jock kind of personality say, God doesn't care about your comfort. God's not here for your comfort. He doesn't care about your comfort. I would drive those people to read this because it's said a lot. Our God is a God of comfort. And do you know how he comforts us? He comforts you personally with his good 
Listen to this. Listen to this cycle that's created, this atmosphere that's created. The way that God comforts us when we are afflicted or when we are suffering, he comforts you in Christ with a good that is from himself, and he also comforts you through the good of others who he's given good to. So we have this good from God directly, and then we have this good from God indirectly through his people, where when you are comforted through suffering, through a trial, through a parenting season that's difficult, and someone helps you, or God's word helps you, or through a financial situation that is difficult, and God's word helps you, or someone else who has experienced God's comfort helps you, it's designed by God to where when you receive comfort, you should receive it in, a, in sort of an anticipation manner. Like, I've been comforted, and apparently I've been comforted so that I can comfort others with the, with the comfort that I was comforted. I've never said that word so many times in my life, but God's saying it that many times here. When you are on the receiving end of something good, and it helps you, it doesn't terminate on you as a Christian. As a Christian, this reality of God's goodness turns us towards God's people, and when we receive something good, we are ready and saying, how can I take this and forward it on to other people? This was a comfort to me. How can I comfort someone else? This was a provision for me. How can I provide for someone else? This was an encouragement for me. How can I encourage someone else? It's this beautiful system that God has created where we have togetherness, shared goods, no needy persons among us, and now... A God-provided comfort through others, through you to others, through others to you, and then you to others, and then others to you. It's a beautiful system that our Lord has put together. Turn over to 1 John. Keep going to the right. 1 John, near the end. We have three Johns, Jude, and Revelation. So 1 John 3, verse 16 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's another picture. God has done this for you so you do this for others. It never terminates on you and that's why the church should be healthy, joyful, steady, well cared for because he says, as I have laid down my life for you, as, as Christ laid down his life for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, implying the brothers and sisters in Christ. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God's love abides in us if we aim to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God's design is that his love, when abided in, has an effect of provision towards the saints. It's not just words. We don't just talk about God's love, people of God. We love in word and in deed. You will have to get your hands dirty. You will have to give something up. It will cost you something, but it will cost you no more than that which you have already been given. This is a beautiful reality that is playing out here. And if God's love is abiding in us, this will be our experience as members of one another. The last one is in Galatians. You're going to have to turn back to the left. I'm changing directions on you. In Galatians 6, and this is the last verse that we'll go to as we consider this reality.
Galatians 6, verse 9. says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Just consider how that hits you this morning. Don't grow weary of doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us do good to everyone as we have opportunity, especially to those who are of the household of faith. God's design is that he gives us so much good, just as the psalmist says, that at every opportunity, we, we must beware not to grow weary. We've got to be careful. Don't grow weary of doing good. This is like the perfect verse post-VBS week, right? Everyone is probably a little weary of all the good that you've done this week, which was a lot of good, by the way. It was wonderful. But this is a wonderful verse to consider after you have served your tail off. Don't become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, there's going to be a harvest. And we're anticipating that harvest of, of more people who will be on the receiving end of that good and more people who will continue to do that good. And so what we he- see here is that at every opportunity we can't grow weary and there is so much good from God toward others that though there is preference here given to those in the household of faith, it's not to the exclusion of those outside. So if you're thinking, well, I'll do good, but I'm going to do good to lost people. Church, has, church people got enough. They need nothing from me. They got salvation. What else do they want? Right? They got Jesus. Why do they need any good from me? But here's the reality. The reality that's being painted for us from the psalmist and all of these examples through the New Testament, and there are other ones in the Old, is that God's design is that if we have to weigh the amount of good that we do in our short lives on earth, as believers, there should be tons of it going toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what makes this place a sweet aroma that brings people in, a a, a life reality that people are drawn to, but it is not to the exclusion of those who are outside of the church. Otherwise, how would the household of faith continue to grow until Jesus returns? Otherwise, how would would the, the writer in Galatians be anticipating a harvest? So God gives us so much good that we can abundantly, thoroughly care for one another and then we can abundantly and care, um, thoroughly begin to care for those who are outside of the church in hopes of bringing them in to be a part of this good work. Church, do not grow weary in doing good. So there's four application points I'd like to get to this morning. The first two are longer. The last two are shorter because that's what pastors do. The first one is this. Too often, when in desperate situations, we view people, even church people, as more the problem than the solution. Too often, we view our brothers and sisters in Christ maybe as more difficult than helpful when we are in desperate situations. So I guess the first application question is this. If in a desperate trial, would God's delightful people be part of your song? In the things you've gone through, in your own experiences, would God's delightful people make it into your song the way it made it into the psalmists. When you recount the deeds of the Lord at the end of the day or at the end of the week, are God's delightful people part of your recounting? Do you sit and say, man, I am so thankful for that people. I love that people. I have been served well by that people, and I want to serve that people well. I don't want to move under some 
wrong perspective that my good only goes to God because it doesn't even make it to God? Is your song one that says, man, I am so thankful for the people of God? Or are you saying, I'm so tired of the people of God? I'm so weary. This is a hard situation, and I just need some space. I know that for many of us sitting here today, your reality is that people, the people that have hurt you the most might actually be church people. I actually thought about doing a show of hands, but I didn't want to make it a depressing morning when everyone raised their hands. I, I, really, I really believe this. I've, heard so, I've counseled so many people through the years that oftentimes the people that have hurt church people the most are other church people. For many, the experience has been that you let your guard down once, maybe you shared your heart, and somehow you got burned. And none of these realities that we've considered this morning make light of that. Trust is broken, so you have a hard time letting others in because that takes trust. I understand that. More than that, God understands that. For many sitting here, trust has been broken, so your guard has gone up, and it's just really hard to let others in. And when you hear the psalmist say, I love God's people, they're excellent, and I delight in them, it feels foreign to you because you have been guarding yourself from these same people that the psalmist is delighting in. I think there's a sweet reminder here that if this is your story, I think the word reminds us this morning that in a fallen and broken world, where we're called to do life with other fallen and broken human beings. Trust is a gift. Trust is a gift. Some of y'all might need to hear that this morning because the reason trust is a gift is because in such a fallen state, there is no human being that can finally earn and ultimately keep your trust. If you've been let down by others, it's because of your experience as a human being in a fallen world. And it doesn't mean that God's system for comfort and togetherness and provision is broken. It means you need it more, not less. But if trust is difficult for you, and if you're one of those people who's thinking, I don't know if that's part of my song, I just would encourage you in the reality that trust is a gift because no one can actually earn it and keep it without failing you. It's a gift. And it's a gift that we can give because we trust the goodness that God gives to his people, right? You can't look at people and say, there's no goodness in those people. Well, apparently, we have no good apart from God, but the thing that's implied there is that we have lots of good from God. So trust is a gift. And I just ask, would that be part of your song, God's Delightful People? I think the second application question that we can consider this morning is, are you allowing God's people to delight in you? It comes on it from a different angle. Are you allowing God's people to delight in you week in and week out? Are you showing up and going through the motions? Or are you, like the psalmist, aware that part of God's design is for you to take all the good that he has given you and direct it toward other people? Are you allowing God's people to have that level of delight in you as you serve them and love them and encourage them and seek to write notes and seek to make connections and know what's going on in their lives and actually ask about that? Are you allowing them in so they can delight in you as you love them and serve them the way that Jesus has done for us? Do you need to grow out of a Jesus and me view of Christianity, where mainly Christianity is just me and God? Some of us may need to mature and grow out of that. Some of us shut people out because we buy into the lie that everyone else has their life together. And if I let them in, they'll see that my baseboards are dirty. 
Everyone else has their life together, and if I let them in, uh, maybe they'll see that there's still some dog hair on my sofa. Christians, open your homes to other people. Since 2003, the way that Crosspoint Fellowship has grown is over dinner tables and in living rooms. And that's not just unique to Crosspoint. That's largely how the church grows. We gather, we come together, it's important, we cannot neglect to meet together, but then throughout the week we do all of this life together. Open your homes to other people. Some of us won't allow anyone in our homes until we finally gotten to the point where it looks like no one actually lives there. Let me say that again. Some of us will not allow people into our homes until we've gotten to that point where it looks like no one is staying there. Nothing's out of place. All the grass is perfect. There's no weeds in the garden. There's no dust on the baseboards. There's no dog here on the sofa. There's no dishes. There's no laundry that we've moved from the sofa to the dresser and the dresser to the sofa and the sofa to the bed and the bed to the dresser before actually folding and putting it up. Now we can have people over. Is that not silly? Are we not a little ridiculous when we do that? Christians, open your homes to other people. Here's two important things that happen when you open your homes to others. There's two really important things that happen when you open your homes to others. First, if there is any good in your marriage, if there is any good in your parenting, if there's any good in your home, if there's any provision from God in the things you have in your finances, you have a chance to give God all of the glory, knowing that that good comes only from him. So when you open your home and people see the good in your life, you have a chance to say God is really good and give him the glory in that. That's the first thing. The second thing, thing that happens is second, if people find, God forbid, that you, in fact, are not perfect and you don't completely have your life together, you have a chance to give God the glory for the good that you still need from him. And you get to model walking in humble dependence every day. These things together keep us Godward, humble, but yet open-handed and eager to delight in others and give them the ability to delight in us. Third application point. It's a little shorter. It's just, do you think God needs you? Is that the thing that motivates you? He certainly loves you. Your God loves you more than you'll ever know. His love actually can't be improved upon at all. There was never a moment where he loved you less than he could have loved you. His love is perfect. Your God loves you. Your God welcomes you in Christ. He, he blesses you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He's so incredibly good. As we saw in Philippians, he, he invites us in to sit and let our requests be made known because he's so full of love and so available. And he gives us unhindered access to himself in Christ. But do you think that it is because he needs something from you? Some of us really need to sit with that question. Do you think it's because he doesn't have in himself total self-sufficiency. Some of us really love to be needed, but sometimes that love of feeling needed is the only thing that motivates us to actually give of our time and our efforts of others, and for the Christian, that cannot be. We must have biblical motivations, and this morning I would offer that thinking that God can't make it without you is not biblical. Brings us to our last application, just something for us to reflect on as we go. Are you aware with the psalmist of the extreme measures of good that you have from God? Do you sit and recount the deeds of the Lord the way the psalmist does in Psalm 9, for instance? Are you aware of that? Or do you spend every day and every week thinking about, well, this didn't go right, this didn't go right, this could have been better, 
this could, have, this could have gone a little better. This wasn't quite what I was hoping for. Are all of your thoughts towards the lack of goodness from God? Or are you aware with the psalmist of the extreme measure of good that you have from God? If you're not aware of how good God has been, is being, and will be towards us, it will certainly be difficult for you to be eager to pass that on to God's delightful people. In order to be good towards others, we have to be well aware of all that God has done for us in, us in Christ. And we don't just visit that place. That's the place we live. As we prepare to take the supper, you can turn there if you would like, or you can just listen. It's in 1 Corinthians 11. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we see the church coming together for the supper, but there's something wrong. And in seeing what was wrong and the way that they came together, it actually helps us to take the supper rightly this morning. So in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, it says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He says, this is a problem as we go to take the supper. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He says this in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Our posture during the supper cannot be a posture of selfishness. It, it, it cannot be a posture of, I'm going to get mine before anyone else gets theirs. So what is it then? Keep reading in verse 23. For I receive from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, a covenant we're all a part of. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat and drink of the cup. I think it's fitting this morning, in light of what the psalmist has said, in light of the many trials that I know a bunch of you are facing, examine yourselves. Do you delight in God's people? Do you allow God's people to delight in you? Are you aware of that goodness that we have from God and are you eager to see it go forward? As we take the supper, that should be our posture. And if it's not, as we distribute the elements, I encourage you, spend some time examining yourself. And if you find things like that, if you find a lack of trust or not wanting to give that gift, or if you find walls that are up and you don't want to let people in, I encourage you, as we distribute the elements and as, as we're singing, to spend some time repenting of that and asking God to help you in that. Because remember, he is a very good God that is a healer and he can heal you, he can help you, and he can push you forward in the love that he has given you. Let's pray and then we'll distribute the elements. Lord, we are humbled before you today. We are thankful for your word. And I pray that we would, like the psalmist, uh, delight in your people the way that you do. Not because we're utterly lovable, not because we don't make mistakes, but because we belong to you. And we're pursuing you as we pursue holiness in our lives, in Christ's likeness in our lives. Lord, as we take this supper, I pray for honesty. 
As we distribute the elements, I pray that we would examine ourselves. We love you and praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.